Hi, and welcome to the Science Ready Podcast, where I'll be talking to incredible women in science and music, two of my constants in life. Today I will be talking to Vicky Callahan, who is Professor of the Practice of Cinematic Arts at the University of Southern California and a media activist. Her research focuses on digital culture, media strategies for social change, media makers, and in particular women media makers, and feminism in film. Hi, Vicky. Uh, welcome on the show. How are you? I'm doing good. Hi. Yeah, thanks. So for uh, people that um, don't know you yet and also to get to know you better, could you please intro yourself and tell us what you're currently working on? Okay. Um, I'm a professor of media arts and practice at the University of Southern California. And that's a relatively new program, Media Arts and Practice. Uh, everything that we do is uh, praxis-oriented, which means it's theory, history, and practice together. We're media makers, but we, we really think about the theory and practice context, uh, theory and history context in which we're working with everything we do. And the kind of courses I, I teach there are uh, new media for social change, uh, race and gender and new media, and also I teach courses in digital humanities. Um, the, the projects I'm working on now, um, I have three three big projects. Uh, two of them are books, and then one's uh, uh, two, two media projects that are related. Um, the first is, as you know, the, the book I'm working on, co-authoring with Sarah Atkinson at King's, which is called... Um, Mixed Realities, Gender Precarity, and New Models of Work in the Convergence Economy. Uh, we're hoping to uh, finish up that project by the end of the summer and get that to our publisher, Wayne State. Um, and then the second book I have is on um, Mabel Normand, who's a silent film star, which is kind of another part of my background. I'm also a media historian, and her impact on... Uh, Hollywood film, and I have a, a book contract with the uh, same publisher, Wayne State. And then lastly, I have this huge media project that I'm working on uh, called The Low Country, which is a work on uh, uh, racial reconciliation in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, after the Walter Scott and the Mother Emanuel shootings. Um, it's really about how you bridge the racial divide in the South, uh, in Charleston in particularly, which has uh, a lot of investment in history as a big part of their tourist trade. Um, and that history is essentially the history of, uh, you know, uh, prior history. Uh, that is to say, plantation times, slavery, uh, times prior to the civil rights of African American. That's really, really how they're uh, that kind of tourism that's being sold there in some ways. And there's there's a lot of effort to produce some counter histories in there, and uh, that's one of the things I'm working on. There's a short film that's also a part of that related called One River One Boat, which looks at interfaith activist organizations, uh, activist organization that's working on uh, profiling, racial profiling. Uh, and I'm, that's what I've mainly been working on in the last couple of months. So I'm getting ready to show some 
some of the first uh, footage of that tomorrow night at a talk at Canon. Okay. Oh, yeah, it sounds really, really interesting. So, um, I mean, can you talk a bit more? I don't know how how um, how much you can talk about it, but what, about the film, the mm -hmm. media project, the racial profiling, and kind of what what brought you to it, and also sure. what kind of the the messages that you want to give with the film. Yes, yeah, those, those are really, really good questions. Um, and I think I should situate it in a couple of things. So firstly, my work has always been about histories that are either invisible or erased or forgotten or um, uh, not uh, previously known about. Um, my background's in feminist and political theory before my work in media studies. So that's another kind of component to my background. Um, in terms of this project specifically, uh, this is set in Charleston, South Carolina. Again, as, you, as I was mentioning, um, after the uh, Mother Emanuel shootings and the Walter Scott shootings, I actually grew up in Charleston. Um, so uh, when the Mother Emanuel shootings happened, it, was, it had a really big impact on me. Um, so I've actually spent the last two years researching this question of how you change Charleston, how you begin to think about the racial divide in Charleston and the South differently, uh, what can be done, can there be reconciliation? And there are groups there, uh, as I mentioned, there's this one activist group, but they're not the only one. There's many groups there trying to make change uh, in, in the city, and it's very interesting to me, like, how do we, we have such a huge racial divide in the U.S., and uh, how, are, how are we ever going to get past that? And I'm, I'm just really interested in that question. I think in the era of Trump, this question of the racial divide has become more critical, and um, the urgency of that work to... Uh, bridge that divide is even more important. So that's kind of one of the things that I'm, I'm looking at with those two, two media projects. Okay. Yeah, well, coming back to the, so the fact that you have this activism um, that is the, 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 basically the groups that are growing um, within the U.S. at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, like how... Obviously, the media has has a big part to play in that, both from both sides, because both from the political side uh, on Trump's behalf, but then on the fact of the activist side, like the role of the media can help them really um, to kind of give their message to uh -huh. the wider audience. So, can you can you tell me a bit more or, or what you feel? the media can do for those activists and how you mm -hmm. can, yeah. Yeah, so that's a really interesting question because we're in this completely uh, unusual moment, you know, the rise of social media. I mean, it's, it's with us. And the, also the rise of um, fake news and charges of fake news. And the president has, very, has been very effective in uh, conjunction with, uh, Fox News to produce fake news, to just say anything. Um, so there's so that's one kind of, and to charge any sort of 
uh, information against him as being fake news. So it's just really a strange moment uh, for news journalism at the, and how media gets used. And of course, he's been uh, very effective on social media. However, that said, it's been very interesting to watch in the last year um, both the Women's March, uh, the Me Too movement, uh, the Parkland survivors, the uh, school children, uh, school children, school teenagers that um, have effectively organized and used social media very uh, skillfully to produce um, really massive protest against um, powers that be, whether those powers that be are um, gun, uh, gun violence and uh, the National Rifle Association, um, or whether that's uh, against sexual assault, right, or whether that's also even against uh, uh, also even uh, the Black Lives Matter movement has been quite interesting too. Uh, and also just for women, uh, women's issues as well. So it's been this kind of amazing use of uh, social media by women's movement, by black activists, and by now youth activists against gun violence um, in the last in the last year, I would say. So it's uh, it's a strange it's a strange time because we're both overwhelmed by this. Um, onslaught of the undermining of journalism and uh, news stories, and at the same time, this kind of uh, pumping out of fake news stories, and also this incredible activism that's using social media as a way to get their word out. So it's a pretty interesting... Yeah, yeah people standing people... up to for what they believe in and basically becoming journalists themselves in a way to portray their story is, is pretty amazing to see what is happening. Um, so at, maybe focusing uh, on your work around when you mentioned also the impact on like women's groups are using it and so on. And can we go into your work a bit on the feminism and within, for example, um, media also your research on diversity in the media, for example, um, yeah. and where you think the issues lie or things that you have experienced yourself or when working on those topics, what, what for you are kind of the, the bottlenecks in, in, in kind of what is happening and, and what, what things that can change, yeah. Yeah, I think the, um, the biggest thing that I always note, so I always come back to it, and this is why even the, the two media projects that I'm working on, the short film and the feature, are always, everything I do is really situated within history. And I think that's the hardest thing to teach uh, students as well. I don't know if it's just because of some, uh, something about American persona. We just always want to be looking ahead and not behind. Um, but that's the real... I think the most difficult part is to see this repetition of histories in the United States and this rep repetition of oppression in the United States. And then the way that we can handle that is to then see the history of it and to say, okay, we're just not going to go through this repetition again. So in terms of my classes, 
I always, um, no matter what we're doing, no matter what kind of, uh, and oftentimes we build media campaigns in class um, around specific issues, but uh, or sometimes we're looking at particular media artist work. Um, but whatever we do, we start with the history so that we don't get into this pattern of, of repeating uh, these forgotten histories, these erased histories, um, because I think that's the key to um, moving forward. And that's what's happening also in, in Charleston, I think, is people are that's why there's so much battle about the monuments right now, the Confederate monuments and the Confederate flag in the United States is because people are trying to say, you know, history doesn't matter. <laughs> and then we can just have these monuments and it doesn't matter. Um, but of course it does. Uh, or we can just forget that happened because that was a long time ago. And of course, the the patterns of that history have have just continued to repeat themselves. So everything I do, I would say, is very much informed by by that approach in my class, and then also in my um, and also in my media work. And I think that's true also too. It, it's not uh, only questions of race, but also questions of gender as well. So those two, and certainly the two are related. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I would say in all of those cases, uh, really focusing back on what, what history we've forgotten or haven't been able to talk about as, as a way to move forward. Is there something that could be done to make, whether, for example, making use of media tools to make people more aware of this has actually happened, this has, has already happened before, we just see a repetition of it, look mm. back and don't make the same mistakes again. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so um, one of the things I've done this semester is uh, I've done a lot of uh, work in my classes on ecofuturism, which is basically doing that very strategy. Um, they're looking to the future with an eye to the past and saying um, they're creating new worlds, but new worlds that are taking into account how the structures of the past have prevented um, freedom for African Americans, right? Um, and how you can then begin to do away with those structures and build new structures. Um, and it's a model uh, that's uh, very interesting because it's a very creative model. And it's very influential in uh, whether that's Octavia Butler's work, uh, literature, or whether that's Janelle Monet's work in terms of music or uh, uh, sci-fi work in terms of, uh, well, even... Uh, Sun Ra's uh, films that were made. Those are very Afro-futurist films. So that's kind of when I when I teach my classes, we might be doing something really creative, but we kind of look to look to Afrofuturism both as a, a theory and as creative work as a kind of model for thinking about change, not in the sense of appropriation, but really as what do they do in this work that helps us imagine different possibilities mm -hmm. so do you like how like when you're within that classroom uh, do you 
I don't know, create situations and put people in certain mm-hmm. situations again mm-hmm. that to reenact what had happened and then come up with like new situations to make that to to avoid that from happening again or yeah yeah, yeah. I, so so, so, I think, so here's a couple of things we've done uh, I've done in the classroom so this semester I had them do what I call synchronized stories which is um, they had to look at some event and they're video essays essentially. Um, and these video essays, you have to think about a time in the past and how it speaks to a moment today. And they really uh, begin to, they can do that in any number of ways, like literally uh, putting them side by side in the frame or showing a chronology. Um, and I think that's been pretty effective. Um, but we also, I also do um, in many of my uh, classes a speculative uh, speculative fiction storytelling assignment and that's usually a group project where they have to imagine a future but it's in light of these present or past problems so they have to address very specific uh, problems again whether that's racism, sexism, homophobia they have to look at that and then imagine what that future world might look like to address those problems like what would have to change so it's it's it doesn't it can't just go off in terms of uh, everybody is inclusive and uh, everybody gets along, but rather what are the components that's preventing uh, preventing uh, inclusivity? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, so they have to imagine a story around that. That's usually pretty good, um, and it can be everything from imagining what the university looks like in 2054 or what uh, what Los Angeles looks like. Uh, we actually did do a project in one of my classes where we looked at the past, present, and future in South Los Angeles in the neighborhood where um, USC is. And that was a really effective, um, effective project too. We did it over the course of the semester and it really helped them think about um, both the history and where where we are and where we're going to. Okay. And uh, could you give an example of what like what was the, like a, a striking thing that they came up with? What would ha- what would need to change to make mm-hmm. it more, for example, inclusive, diverse, or tackle certain problems within that specific, yeah. for example, Southern California, where USC is based. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Um, I think one of the, actually I'll kind of go to one that they're doing this semester because they have a very similar kind of project right now. Um, and they're dealing with um, gun violence, like gun violence. And, and they actually are building like a, a storytelling. They're using Twine, which is a pretty simple game engine. And they're using Twine as a imagining a future uh, without gun violence. So they have a very, you know, uh, they have a very specific problem that they're looking at and how they begin to address it. And also even thinking about does, does certain kinds of policies improve uh, the gun violence? That's, for example, do putting more guns in classrooms, which is the really stupid idea they came up with <laughs> over here, uh, arming teachers, would that be effective? So that's the game they're going through is that they're designing 
is um, what would it mean to arm a teacher, right? Uh, and actually working through that through the through the game. To learn a bit more about you as well in terms of because you so you you you, you mentioned that your background is in feminist and political theories. Uh-huh. And could you tell a bit more about why you went into that subject of study and yeah, what what kind of interested you in, in taking up that type of research and then staying in academia, working further, I guess, in 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 kind of uh those areas? Yeah, so I guess um Maybe I'll even talk about here a little bit about how I even got got to here, which seems kind of crazy, but, but it's it's interesting because as I was interviewing people for the the book on mixed realities, I actually found that many people had very similar kinds of backgrounds. So we all get to these places in very strange ways, I guess, um, particularly media where it requires so many different skills. Right? You have to, as you as you're looking into, you have to know something about science, technology, history, politics, you know, all these things are media, all these things are uh, useful, it's very interdisciplinary. And so I guess I would say I started out um, tr- working on the creative side both a couple of times. I started out in music, and then I uh, was very interested in political issues, um, so I gravitated over to political theory. Um, sort of left my my music side to the side for a while. And then I found that I really um, missed that kind of creative component and wanted to begin to integrate uh, these social issues back into the creative side. So I actually took up uh, photography and video uh, and was working in that area, but then kind of got really interested in this question of history and forgotten histories again. And I think that's the, um, as I was beginning to study film and video and photography, I'm like, look at all this amazing, and I was very fortunate. I had great professors that really were showed very diverse work, both in terms of experimental work, uh, works from uh, women, uh, you know, diverse sexuality. So this was not, I was not only, I was not when I was studying media only looking at um, very kind of homogenous work. I was looking at this really array, diverse work. Um, So then I got very interested again and particularly in the issue of women filmmakers and um, hidden women filmmakers as well. So my my first book was, even though it was on a, (laughs) a male filmmaker in France, it was really uh, a kind of subversive text about the woman who worked with him, who made films and was almost never talked about except as a uh, erotic object in his films. But it turns out she was a filmmaker and a playwright and a novelist and worked in the theater. She had all this incredible career, but we only saw her as a, uh, you know, a muse and a sex object in this series of films. So I think that was really very eye-opening for me about how things become hidden, and indeed, even when they're right in front of you, because they're just, they're not seen as uh, worthy of uh, scholarly uh, scholarly work, right? So that's really been my, 
And the, the work, book I'm working on in Mabel Norman, another silent film star, again, very important. She was a producer, a director, as well as a <clears throat> star. And we just haven't heard. There, there's not one book on her except as more kind of like popular biography and nothing about the work itself. So I think that's always key. That even up to today, it still exists. I mean, if you look mm -hmm. at, if you ask, I guess, 10 people on the street to name a um, male director, everybody will know one. If they have to, or like five male directors, they will have no issue. If they have to name five female directors, film directors, because, be, just because they are just not given the same opportunities or they're just not pushed to the front as, as all the male directors. So um, do you see any change in that happening already or is that still kind of very much the case? Well, I think that um, there's a lot of really good things that are happening on the scholarly academic side, although I would say still, you know, when when people often get some of the history classes, they still kind of get the great works, and the great works are quite the same ones by the same men, by the same white men, uh, so by the same straight white men. So it's uh, quite, that's, that has to really be uh, something that more people need to be hired, more books need to be written. So, but I do think it's changing. There's a very active um, women in screen history group. There's a, uh, very, there's a very active uh, group in the big cinema studies a conference, both that... Uh, looks at African-American media and also LGBT issues. So I think that that's it's a question of time and uh, getting those ideas into more circulation, right? But then they also have to be hired and have that opportunity to have an effect on the students as well. So when we met actually about less than a year ago, when we, we were working on the, on this project around diversity, inclusivity, accessibility in new emerging technologies and new media yeah. like virtual reality, I wanted to get into detail a bit more. Um, um, so you mentioned you're writing a book around mixed reality um, and gender. And could you give a bit more detail about kind of the focus of the book and the findings that you, um, that, that basically will come, came out of the work that you, you did within yeah. this. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I'm, I'm going to say a couple of things about this that might not be that obvious. And it's something that's happened also, I would say, in the last year that's really important. Um, first, first off, I would say right now in terms of uh, the emergent tech that's happening, it's really interesting to me when I talk to, when I've interviewed many of the women for the book, it's kind of the same thing, you know, they're doing all the labor, but they're, uh, which is, I, I mean the same thing as what's happened historically, um, which is to say they're kind of working at the margins of visibility. And, uh, unless they're very uh, focused on uh, doing so, doing it solo. Um, but they're, they tend to be uh, in all kinds of 
different components but of the media industry, but they, they wind up kind of being categorized in more of the soft skills area. So um, they're, they're kind of uh, not seen as the director or not seen as the, the lead producer, but more like a line producer or an associate producer. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see, and certainly the women that have worked in VR have talked about just uh, endlessly when they, uh, even though they can be very uh, tech knowledgeable themselves, when they go to conferences or when they interact um, in various professional contexts, they're inevitably kind of patronized, talked down to. Um, so I think in some ways, it's very much uh, the new tech world is kind of like the old tech world, unfortunately. And we saw this with Google, right, with the Google manifesto earlier in the year, um, how difficult it is to break through these uh, stereotypes of um, women in the tech industry. But I, I will say, I think something's happening, which is to say, I don't think we should underestimate the Me Too movement. This might sound like I'm diverging, but I think it's going to have an impact on media far beyond... Uh, the explicit issue of sexual assault. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that is to say, um, as you know, we've started to have this very public conversation about harassment and assault, and that was actually the work of a long time. The Me Too movement is actually the work of a long time. Uh, uh, African-American activist, Tarana Burke, um, and that's been going on for years, but then this on um, sexual assault, but then this got brought up again in Hollywood, and she had the Me Too movement, and this was uh, brought up again in Hollywood using that uh, same hashtag or same phrase, Me Too. And what's happened, I think, as a result, it's had this huge impact on women saying never again, saying enough. Um, and I think what's going to happen as a consequence of that is we're going to see people say, I need to get credit for my work. We don't need to wait for your permission, we don't need to wait for your funding, and we can do this ourselves. That's what I'm starting to see right now, um, this kind of more grassroots organization and kind of grassroots women saying, I'm just, we're not going to do this anymore, right? We're not going to be just the person on the side not getting credit or not being paid. So I think the Me Too movement has a bigger, is going to have a bigger impact uh, well beyond sexual assault uh, and really into the gender dynamics of uh, media making. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, it is amazing to see what is what is happening. And um, I mean, having worked in tech for a very long time myself, I with this new movement coming in and basically women standing up for what they... Um, or what they deserve and for what they stand as well, I think is incredibly um, positive to see. And and there, I guess, like the fact of having groups of women as well, supporting each other. Mm -hmm. um, have you seen any, because that, that obviously is really important to basically break down those barriers and, and take on kind of the journey yourself rather than waiting for men to give permission or... Um, 
is is have you seen anything change there as well in in media on the media level in terms of like really groups of women or diverse groups that kind of want to break down these barriers of yeah them? i think there's, there's a, a lot, lot of really, really great things happening, happening. um i, I would, would say uh, one, one of the people or two, two of the people that i interviewed um <clears throat> started um women in vr um, and that was uh, a group they just started as a Facebook group. So it's uh, Julie Young and uh, Jen, Jen Duong. They started um, Women in VR and also Shift. And they did that as a way to just uh, be very supportive. So the Women in VR is just a Facebook group that started out as a kind of local networking thing in Los Angeles. And now it's this kind of international Facebook group with thousands of members. Um, and then Shift is a, another company um, that focuses on facilitating or supporting uh, diverse work in VR. So I think that's, those are two, um, two things I can think of immediately. Um, and also uh, Nani de la Pena's work in VR, she's very focused on making sure that um, she has a very diverse work crew as well. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, yeah. She she's doing amazing work in in terms of uh, pushing diversity forward within within VR and and kind of these new emerging technologies. And one of your focus areas is on media strategies for social change, for example, and especially within kind of this um, social. Im- space it's usually much more hard much harder to get funding in for um to basically develop projects how how is your um experience with that compared to like if you are developing a media that is very um uh let's say blockbuster type of uh, rather than than actually um documentaries that that tackle uh, important social aspects yeah, I mean, I think it's um, it's difficult because it's so competitive, right? And there's so and in the U.S. there's so little funding uh, from uh, government institutions. There's the NEH, National Endowment for Humanities, and the National Endowment for Arts, but they're so small. The amount of funds that they have every year, they're threatened to either cut their funds or do away with the uh, agencies themselves. So that's always um, a very, very difficult kind of path if you're working in um, either experimental or documentary form. There are some places, there is a kind of growth, and we're certainly seeing the kind of uh, renaissance, I would say, of documentary, and there's new opportunities, whether that's through Netflix um, or Amazon, uh, these these uh, two entities in particular, are starting to fund content, um, but you know they're still in a business to to make money. So it's it is uh, that's still the driver. So the that model of making a lot of money very quickly is still very much a, a part of it. But the other thing is, both of them really do need content. So it has it has made a bit of a crack. Um, and also, I think the other thing is they do want to make money, and they do see how much um, 
demographic change is going on in the U.S. Um, just in terms, so it's becoming a much more diverse country, and I think that these new uh, emergent forms and you know online streaming, they're going to have to address that. And you can already see that in their programming, particularly Netflix. Um, Amazon, we'll we'll see. They're not quite there yet, uh, but definitely Netflix uh, has has some pretty pretty diverse material on there, and socially conscious material as well. Yeah, they have some amazing documentaries on there. Uh, that they're funding directly, you know, yeah, awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, no, that's, I mean, that, that is absolutely amazing what they're doing. Um, so, I mean, you, 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 you mentioned it already before, uh, just, just now is around, they need content basically to be able mm-hmm. to, to attract customers. But so what is, when looking at, at VR now, um, because there, obviously, content is the most important thing to be able to engage um, people going in, into the virtual reality environment. And how? what are your thoughts on... Well, so VR in storytelling has a very important part to play, I think, um, and especially in social matters mm-hmm. and trying mm-hmm. to create empathy and could you could you give yeah give us a bit of insights on on your thoughts on that and yeah i think there's amazing work that's being done in um documentary and kind of socially focused work uh as i mentioned nani de la pena's work and that's uh very much looking at social issues diversity issues um uh also um I was just trying to remember her last uh, work, but she she also did the work on the, uh, uh, oh, I'm trying to think of the, I'm spacing out on the name of it, but it was on uh, abortion abortion rights. And uh, they were uh, essentially creating um, uh, a story that helped you understand what it was like to go into an abortion clinic and how, how you had to face all these uh, protesters as you're trying to get your health care, right, as you're trying to address your, your health care. And so that's an amazing uh, VR piece. She's also done another uh, VR piece on um, uh, LGBT rights, uh, and that's another one where you're put in the point of uh, the story of someone who's being thrown out of his home because his family don't want to engage with him anymore uh, because he's because he's gay. So I mean, I think her work is, um, you know, probably two of the most. Uh, I mean, her work is one of the kind of really at the forefront of people really thinking through this kind of social change and empathy. How do you create empathy? Now, of course, that's a bit also kind of a. Um, question that's come up a lot do we have how intense is that empathy in these in these contexts right do we take off our headset and the empathy's gone um and i think that's an important issue too but it does uh that those are some questions or those are cases where um she's definitely trying to uh look at these issues very very carefully yeah, related to this, actually, I wanted to ask you another question, and because that often 
that very much is present in media as well. So I was at this conference um, about games and law, basically. And wow. so it was around... Um, one one of the talks was around violence in games and wow. basically the rating that games would get if it's too violent. But actually it goes really... And, and at the time that they would be basically forbidden. Um, but that until they actually are are not allowed to go to the market, it can go really, really far. So very, very violent situations. But also in terms of basically how women or other kind of race are being portrayed often in those games is yeah. that either like women would be very um, um, submissive and kind of in a very... Uh, uh, often in very precarious situations and same for other type of... And I was wondering, like... because And there's no law around that, so that's kind of what I wanted to say, because, okay, I was wondering within film, there's obviously rules as well in terms of what is allowed and at what point are we going to say that is not allowed. And that's the same for VR. Like, at what point are we going to say this content is not allowed because uh-huh. it's just ethically not or morally not not um, justified. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So I was wondering, yeah, if you have any thoughts on that or... Like what sort of um, censorship you should put in on the form before you... Yeah, or, or as it develops. if it's even possible, yeah, because mm. I feel these, all these new forms, VR content being created, no rules have been set out, really. Mm-hmm. And well, I think the main thing is uh, censorship always is a, a flawed way to, I would say, yeah. approach that. Because usually uh, uh, those being censored are usually the people that should be speaking. So, uh, so that's kind of not the best, um, the best way to go, I would say. But there is really interesting uh, work being done. I guess what I would say, the work that's being done, um, particularly by... Uh, uh, Kamal Sinclair and Ingrid Kopp, they have a series on Medium. I was trying to find uh, what their series title is, and they're, they're actually talking about um, new ethics. In, oh, here we go. It's called Making a New Reality. Uh, Kamal Sinclair's been uh, working on this series for quite some time, and it's about equality in emerging media. It's a great series. I highly recommend it. Um, and looking at all of these different questions of ethics, diversity, as these new forms take place. So I think that's what we we need to do. We need more writing. We need more critical engagement with media making. Um, And that's really, uh, I think, what what we should be doing. And just being more active in the conversation also about uh, what these new sh- new forms should be doing. Um, so uh, I think that's a, a really important series uh, as well. Yeah, so in go- engaging really everyone, content creators, developers, movie makers, everyone really in the conversation of this is... Yes, and making that as uh, diverse a conversation as, as possible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
No, that's really great. Um, any final comments um, to add to uh, before we go into the quick fire quiz? Um, I had a couple of things um, in terms of uh, going back to this history uh, question. Also, uh, I just think that um, there's a couple of things that are coming out right now. Uh, that I think are really great in terms of maybe don't be too depressed about uh, how things are unfolding. Uh, Aaron Hill has this wonderful book out called Never Done, A History of Women's Work in Media Production. Uh, I believe it just won the new Media Studies Award for book. It just came out. And, and that one really looks at hidden labor and how women uh, have worked in the industry has not, have not been... Uh, always given the credit for their work, uh, but also looks at how women essentially persisted and were able to uh, make inroads and to make changes, too. Um, so I think that's one thing, is, is always thinking about the kind of longer, longer vision of, uh, of our media engagement and our, our media struggle, actually, to put it more... <laughs> more bluntly yeah yeah okay no that's really great um yeah i will add that book anyways to the show notes so people can look it up as well um uh so yeah no that that it's incredibly interesting what you're working on and and really um looking forward as well to see how things uh within within media and just the, the project that come out of the movements that exist now or are growing within the U.S. And yeah, I'm actually reading, reading that yeah. uh, book right now because of the uh, because of the book I'm working on because it, it seems like there's so much of what what we found as we did the interviews were again like women's work were was either uh, undervalued, underpaid, marginalized. They weren't given titles, um, and often they'd have to go off on their own. Um, so I think I think that's also, uh, one of the big uh, things to understand is this isn't, again, history. This isn't new history. What people are going through now with emergent tech is something that's been a, a history of women in media. Another thing I'm reading that's really great, I have to give my graduate students, my PhD students, a shout out for also pointing me toward this uh, Sophia Noble's book, Algorithms of Oppression, okay. how, how Search Engines Reinforce Racism. And it really does this great job of this, all this tech that we think is so value neutral mm -hmm. is really embedded in the, the structures of oppression in the country. So um, that's a great book too that I'm, that I'm also uh, working through right now. Okay, no, that's, that's very interesting. Um... Especially, so do you mean, uh, is it around like algorithms that are trained with like um, machine learning and basically it's because the, the tool, the images, for example, that developers are using are very, um, very stereotypical in a sense? Yeah, so they're, they're being well. trained to, so for example, she uses the, the, the great uh, example of she just types in... Uh, uh, black, black women or black girls and all this pornography comes up mm -hmm. right so you think you're just going to get some really innocent objective 
So, but rather what you get is this reinforcement of stereotypes. Or if you type in the word, word beautiful in Google, you would typically get white women. As, uh, and that's not because it's so objective. It's because how the algorithms are set up to essentially reinforce uh, stereotypes and or for who has paid to make sure their material comes to the top of the search list, right? So there is both uh, the stereotypes um, and prior representational st stereotypes or stereotype, uh, excuse me, representational stereotypes, and then also the role of capitalism in shaping how these search engines work too. Yeah, 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 advertisements and mm -hmm. marketing behind it. Yeah, all very interesting. Um, yeah, so then you mentioned before that actually you started out in music, and I'm very keen to learn more about that as well. Could you could you tell me a bit more about what you what 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 does music what did music mean to you, and what does it mean to you today still? Well, it's very important. You know, I started I was more classically trained. Mm -hmm. So I was going to be a classical musician for a long time. That was my goal. And somehow I got into this whole political thing. So I got I got diverted. Uh, but it's always been a really important uh, part, of, part of my upbringing. Although I will say I was classically trained, but I've always been very uh, influenced by popular music as well. And usually popular music that has some kind of social component to it. Um, so, for example, yeah. So, for example, I would say uh, that this will really date me, but the kind of most important uh, music that I can think of growing up was like Parliament Funkadelic. You know, that was just so uh, imaginative, playful. It was wonderful dance music, but it was also extremely conceptual. Uh, it was like sound art. It was also very inclusive. It was a participatory culture, so it was way ahead of its time, I think. Um, uh, it was a kind of performance art, uh, and also, as I said, kind of inclusive, uh, inclusive vision for where we should be going. So that was that's always been uh, key to uh, the, the kinds of music that I've looked to and someone right now, I think I mentioned her earlier, like Janelle Monet is, her work is just incredible. Um, and I just think she's a really interesting artist. She's always, again, kind of at that edge of performance art uh, and also someone who invokes history a lot in her own work, very much looking forward, even though she does a lot of things where she's uh, doing kind of futurist roles. She's also giving a shout out to uh, her history at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I love her music as well. It's, I'll, I'll look up uh, Parliament's Funkadelic, right, it was? Yeah, 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 go, yeah. go look up mother, Mothership Connection. Okay, <laughs> I will do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm always, I'm always very interested in discovering new music uh, that, that also has, has a meaning behind it. And so I really like um, the fact that you mentioned, like, both of them have this really kind of either social or historical impact. Um, I think also, too, also really within, I always kind of trace this as a pattern. So you have, even before Parliament Funkadelic, you had Sun Ra, the jazz musician, 
and he was also working in this kind of performance art and just uh, Afrofuturism and thinking about uh, sound art also. Um, he was very fluid in all kinds of music, all kinds of jazz genres, uh, but also did so he could do uh, very kind of like popular. And his, those films that he's done are very much about creating an alternative universe. So, um, so again, it's a kind of social discussion, social insight at the same time as uh, working through music. And so that's been uh, key to the people that I always find the most interesting. Yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah, me as well. I think that's it's it's really really great just to kind of see where they're coming from and and what they want to cons like convey in their in their music or in their art that they're creating mm -hmm. performance art they they're doing. Um, I mean, these, these musicians obviously impacted you um, in in some way. Um, uh, when looking then into science and technology, like what would you say is is the invention that you think is the most amazing invention that has been has been uh, conceived has been made basically and and that you're using on a daily basis or that is kind of um, just out there that you think is is incredible. Yeah, well, I guess I would say it's not particularly uh, illuminating or probably an unusual answer, but I just think the telephone. But I have to say the telephone more even as its original point of invention. So, And that's so influenced by this book uh, by Stephen Kern, A Culture of Time and Space, where he talks about things like the railroad, the telegraph, and the telephone giving us a new relationship to time and space. And I just think that's the phone. You know, it's not just that we can do email on it or, you know, do, do our Facebook, but it's it's really about that ability to uh, reimagine time and space. It can teleport us anywhere. Now it can actually bring someone, you know, visually next to you who can be in another country. And indeed, here we are right now. We could do this on our phone to Skype conversations on the phone, right? Um or on FaceTime, or on any number of these apps. So I think the the telephone for its that ability to uh, really reimagine time and space, and just do everything through. And now you can do VR through your phone too. So it has this uh, really uh, amazing capacity. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I that's for me as well very high on the because it has this amazing capacity to connect you with people and. Uh, mm -hmm. at any time of day as well um, and then my last question um, a recommendation of a work by female scientists um, mm -hmm. so, and I, I think, think I would her. yeah yeah I, I think, think I would say uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, err on the side of art yeah. <laughs> because yeah, that's the that's the area I know the best yeah, yeah. but Lynn Hirschman Leeson oh yeah uh, she's been working on these really amazing issues um, as a multimedia artist. She looks at issues of identity, tech, consumerism, surveillance, uh, questions of representation, interactivity. Um, she's been working on this since the 70s. So uh, she's just an amazing, amazing artist and working in this area, a pioneer, and really thinking 
uh, about this question of who are we and who are we in relationship to these devices also, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think her work is just always, I'm always interested to see what she's, what she's doing. Um, and the other thing I really appreciate about her is she did a, she's also a filmmaker. She's like, as a, she works in many, many uh, different formats, but she's also a filmmaker. She's made several kind of sci-fi films, uh, also very much on women and technology. Um, and questions of identity, but she also has this really amazing film, which I show to my students, which is called Women, Art, and Revolution, which is a history of um, the women's movement and women artists from the 70s till today, and it's a, it's a great uh, history lesson, and it really, uh, really shows us uh, some important artists that I think again, could get lost to history uh, without that kind of documentation uh, in, in, this, in the film. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's incredible how, I, how basically issues um, can be, or how activists use various forms of art, whether it's music, whether it's words, spoken word, whether it's performance, to convey their um basically how they feel about the situations and how they then gather people on their journey to change things and that I think is incredibly powerful within art media and and so on mm -hmm. well, thanks a lot for being on the show it was it was really great to talk and learn more about your work and um I guess like where people could is the best way to contact you would be on Twitter or how, how yeah. will people be able to get yeah. in touch? There's, There's a couple of places. places. I'm pretty active on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Just uh, at uh, V-A-C-A-L-L. Yeah. And that's my Twitter handle. And then also if you go to VickiCallahan.com, I have a website where I'm, uh, I don't post on it a lot, but it's usually what my current research interests are, what uh, conferences I'm at, uh, and also there's links to other things that I do. So you can, I believe there's a link uh, to my teaching so you can see some of the work that we do in our class, in my classes. Yeah, no, that's great. I will add that as well, that people can find you easily and, and can get in touch if they, or want to learn more about your work. So, um, so yeah, thanks a lot for being on the show and, and everyone, thanks for listening as well. And, and all the best with the finishing of your books and the project that you're doing as well with canon that sounds really really incredible and and very important so so thanks for sharing that okay. with us thank you for uh, inviting me on this is great all right thanks a lot bye everyone okay. bye hi